0: The benefit of ZBI is that it does mix the stability of bonds, but also it does offer those higher-yielding instruments that also provide protection against rising interest rates as well.
1: Welcome to ETF Market Insights, a podcast where some of Canada's leading investment experts guide you through the world of exchange-traded funds. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. And today we're going to be talking about the recent launch of BMO's Canadian Bank Income ETF with the ticker ZBI, offering the first passive rules-based ETF tracking the Canadian Bank Funding Asset Class. The exposure is different from traditional fixed income strategies, with the fund investing in Canadian Bank-issued bonds, which represent roughly 60% of the target weight, as well as complemented by hybrid securities like preferred shares and LRCNs. For fixed income and yield-oriented investors, ZBI aims to provide a one-ticket solution to different yield-enhancing segments of the Canadian bank funding market, including securities that are traditionally only accessible to institutional investors. One of the most common themes that advisors are asking and what challenges they have have to do with fixed income. So what do these challenges actually mean? In general, yields are simply not what they used to be, and to increase them, one needs to consider different credit levels like high yield or extending duration across the bond portfolio. Most advisors know this, and in my conversations, they're looking for other solutions to complement their fixed income holdings. In effect, they're looking for a new dimension in fixed income investing. The good news is, in terms of demand, this leads to innovation. Innovation that our team works through in different product strategies. That will be our focus for today's session i think this is one of the more innovative etfs that i've seen coming off of our shelf in the last number of years for this reason we're joined by alfred lee today who is my colleague pm and director of our etf team to talk about our most recent launch and alfred i want to say thank you for joining us today great
0: thank you rob thanks for the opportunity
1: so Alfred, before we jump into ZBI, can we talk a little bit about the fixed income market in its original days? So we're looking back ten to fifteen years ago because I know you were instrumental in launching that first fixed income product here in Canada.
0: Well, I think you know one of the benefits of fixed income ETFs is that even though they've been around for a while, I think they they are very innovative, right? So you know when you look at all of the advantages that we talk about when it comes to ETF investing, you know things like transparency, liquidity, price discovery. Um, I would say all of those are even more pronounced when you're looking at fixed income ETFs. And I think, you know, as you know, um, a lot of clients, both in the retail and the institutional world, have have gravitated towards fixed income ETFs because they address a lot of the shortcomings of the underlying fixed income market. So, you know, when you look at the fixed income market, you know, it's a very opaque market. Um, you know, you can't see the bid or offer. So it's really just an upstairs market where you know you don't know how much of that bond is traded, um, you don't know where it last traded either. Um, bid offer spreads on bonds are also very wide as well, especially when you look at the corporate bond space. Uh, scalability is also an issue as well. So I think you know you and I have had conversations with a lot of your clients where you know on the advisor level, um, if they have capital come in for a client um, and they go out and, and buy, let's say a TD bond. Uh, three months later, when they get additional capital and they want to scale up that position, that TD bond may not be be there anymore. So they have to go and buy, you know, a proxy, say a, CA, a bond or whatever it may be. Um, when it comes to fixed income ETF, I think it addresses a lot of these shortcomings. Um, you know, ETFs are listed on the equity exchange, so it's a fully lit market. You know, um, there, you know, where the bid offer is, how much of the volume is traded, even though it's not, even though it's not an indicator of liquidity. Um, it does give you a lot more intel and bid offer spreads on, you know, um, ETFs are tighter than the underlying market. And that's why institutions have gravitated towards ETFs as well. And scalability is also a big benefit of ETFs. You could always add to the position. Um, let's say, for example, if a client goes out and buys that CS, which is our short corporate bond ETF, they could always go out and add to that position as well. Um, you know, not to mention, I think, you know, when you look at fixed income ETFs, um, you know, in in on the retail level, um, fifteen years ago, you could you can't get access to high yield emerging market bonds and even treasuries. But now, through an ETF, um, it's essentially leveled the playing field with uh, you know institutional investors as well, right? So, um, you know, from a portfolio construction level, I think think of ETFs have really gone a long way um, in terms of you know allowing investors to build a more holistic portfolio. But you know, to your point, I think um, you know this is a very innovative ETF. Um, I think uh, Canada has essentially been on the forefront in terms of developing um, you know ETFs. The first ETF in the world was launched here. Uh, The first bond ETF, uh, which was launched here, ten to fifteen years ago, and our team was involved in this back in the iShares days. Uh, But you know, with ZBI, this is a further uh, good example of how ETFs in Canada. In terms of innovation,
1: we're really just at the forefront uh, pushing innovation. I think you're right about that. And just seeing the daily flows in the business that we do at BMO, more than in some cases, half the business we do is in the fixed income segment, recognizing that the equity exposure that they could have bought 15 to 20 years ago was definitely the focus out of the gate. But fixed income continues to grow in terms of its application and clients embracing Uh, ETFs that expose themselves to fixed income as the underlying. So just to carry on that theme, we talked about innovations. What really was the objective in creating uh, the investment exposure for ZBI? I know you were very influential in that. Based on the conversations that you've had with a lot of your clients, I think advisors
0: especially have been really challenged in terms of, you know, what to do with fixed income over the last several years. Until the last couple of months, I would say fixed income is, really been yielding next to nothing, right? So, you know, we've been at the bottom of an interest rate cycle, but at the same time, we know that, you know, higher interest rates are coming through um, central bank tightening. Also inflation is coming because, um, you know, because of what's going on with COVID, um, additional monetary stimulus, uh, so on and so forth. So we know higher interest rates are to come. So um, it really, you know, makes it very difficult for fixed income investors. Uh, But at the same time, I mean, you know, a lot of advisors coming into the year, they've been saying, you know, I want to abandon fixed income, but, you know, as a part of my IPS, I have to have, you know, some portion of my client's um, portfolio in fixed income investments. And, you know, I think it's always a good idea to have fixed income exposure in your portfolio, because as we've seen in the last couple of months, it it really nullifies or at least mitigates some of the equity market volatility, right? So even though fixed income has really been, you know, um, challenged, um, it does offer a lot of benefits to a portfolio, but I think you know when it comes to advisors, you know when they look at fixed income, they they really feel like they painted themselves into a corner, right? I mean,
1: there's really three
0: options there. Uh, you could really hold something safe, and you get next to nothing in return. Uh, option two is you essentially take on a little bit of credit risk, but who knows, you know what what risk you're going to take on, especially if you go into things like emerging market bonds. Um, duration risk uh, is another way of getting more yield, but it's been been a pretty flat yield curve. Uh, but at the same time, with all the interest rate hikes that are anticipated, you do take on a lot of duration um, exposure, right? So in, in terms of ZBI, you know, the genesis of how we came up with this product is we essentially wanted to address all these shortcomings and the challenges in the fixed income market. So we essentially started with a blank slate and um, essentially tried to figure out you know, what's the best way in getting um, or solving these problems for advisors. But at the same time, you know, talking with the head offices and and knowing, you know, what are what are the rules that govern them, things like the CIFSC classifications. So staying within those parameters at the same time as well.
1: So in terms of introducing a new type of fixed income instrument wrapped in an ETF, Alfred, can you talk a little bit about the origination and process behind ZBI? Sure.
0: You know, one of the main advantages of uh, being a Canadian ETF provider. Is that you know we have a lot of conversations with our clients, whether it's retail advisors, head office, institutional accounts, or direct investors, or whatever it may be. Um, I think one of the advantages of being a Canadian ETF provider is that you know we're always listening to our clients, what their objectives are, and what the challenges they are in in terms of they're facing, in terms of you know what kind of outcome they're trying to get, in terms of their investment. So uh, our approach is always to you know listen to that and also uh, to design products that are, uh, you know, uh, that essentially address their specific outcomes. But in terms of, you know, retail advisors, I think, you know, with the challenges that they face today, they really face, you know, three specific things. So there's three specific things they want. They want higher yield uh, above and beyond what's offered by the current fixed income market. They want protection against higher rates and also inflation, given what's going on in the economy right now. But they also want high quality as well. So they don't want to dip into things like sub investment grade, you know, given that, you know, what we're seeing in the emerging market bond space, especially given with sanctions, uh, they just want quality. And when it comes to fixed income investments, they want a lot of safety. And I think, you know, ZBI essentially addresses all of these, you know, by combining 60% of bonds issued exclusively by Canadian banks, that provides, you know, defense to bonds, that provides a defensive element to the ETF. But by allowing 40% of the ETF to go down one notch lower down the capital structure, you allow the ETF to generate additional yield above above and beyond you know, fixed income. And you also get protection against rising interest rates as well. So when you look at you know, things like LRCNs, things like uh, preferred shares, keep in mind they have that resettable feature. So as interest rates continue to go up, they're going to be able to reset to a higher dividend or a higher income rate. And last but not least, when you're focusing on the instruments issued by banks, you know, keep in mind that, you know, that allows us to focus on the quality and the soundness of the Canadian banks. And, you know, keep in mind ZBI is investment grade. So, um, you know, I think by getting yield, by focusing on the quality of the banks rather than, you know, forcing advisors to go into things like high yield and going into things like emerging market bonds, but instead by Focus on focusing on the quality of the banks and then going down lower in the capital structure is a more efficient way of getting yield. And in terms of solvency risk, ZBI is going to be obviously much lower than things like high-yield bonds and emerging market
1: debt as well. And then Canadians tend to be partial to Canadian bank securities on the equity side for sure. Does that come into your decision-making process as far as why we've used Canadian credit um, in terms of familiarity and visibility in the client size? Or is that just coincidental?
0: In terms of, you know, the comfort with Canadian banks, I would say so. I mean, and as you know, I think as Canadians, um, it's a really unique situation, right? Where um, I think most Canadian investors are very um, you know comfortable with owning Canadian banks, whether it's through bonds or stocks or whatever it may be. And I think for good reason. I mean, when you look at Canadian banks, um, the world were known for their stability and soundness, right? I mean, um, you know, a good example is, you know, after the financial crisis, um, while the whole, you know, global financial system was essentially, you know, brought to its knees, um, the Canadian bank came away relatively unscathed and, and for a very good reason. It wasn't by accident either. Um, you know, Canadian banks tend to be run very conservatively. Um, they tend to be very well capitalized. They're independently governed by a number of regulators, including OSFI as well. And, you know, after or in the wake of 2008, you know, the Canadian banking system, as you know, was, um, you know, uh, recognized for a number of accolades, including in the most sound banking system for eight years in a row. Uh, a lot of credit um, credit uh, providers, essentially, or credit rating agencies, essentially um, gave a lot of accolades to the banking system as well. Right. So I think, you know, um, when you look at Canadian banks, I think a lot of investors are very comfortable with owning Canadian banks. Even for international investors, um, they're very comfortable with Canadian banks as well, right? So even when you look outside of Canada, I would say that's not true for you know U.S. investors. They're not perfectly comfortable investing in um, you know banks of their own. But when it comes to Canadian investing or Canadian banks, global investors tend to be very comfortable
1: with owning the Canadian banks. And I think that helps the conversation where clients are familiar with the asset class. But to go a little bit deeper on the three components that make up ZBI, we look at LRCNs, we look at traditional preferred shares, which clients are probably more familiar with, and then obviously uh, traditional bank bonds, which make up over 60% of the portfolio. Can we talk about each of those different categories and LRCNs in particular, because it's something that clients may not have looked at before? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think ZBI, I mean, to your points earlier,
0: um, it is a unique mix of those instruments. Um, You know, ZBI essentially is uh, a one ticket solution to get exposure to um, not just bonds, but also traditional preferred shares, institutional preferred shares, uh, limited recourse capital notes, LRCNs, or some people call them AT1 bonds, uh, which stand for additional tier one capital bonds. Um, so, in terms of the portfolio construction, it's really unique because you know 60% of the portfolio is essentially invested in um, bonds. So, bonds issued by the Canadian Bank. So, uh, that component provides a lot of stability and defensiveness to the ETF or the portfolio. Um, so, these are bonds, you know, higher up in the capital structure. So, this is essentially you know as, as safe as you get in terms of you know bond related or bank related investments. The remaining 40%. Uh, what we're doing is we're allowing the portfolio to invest lower down the capital structure, so one notch below. Um, so that includes things like, you know, traditional preferred shares, um, also institutional preferred shares, uh, LRCNs, which is you know limited recourse capital notes that I uh, mentioned earlier. Um, why that's interesting is because the institutional preferred shares and the LRCNs. Those are only accessible to institutional investors, but for retail investors, they could access those instruments through ZBI. So that's really unique and that's that's an industry first as well. Um, you know I think in terms of the construction of the portfolio, um, the 40% that's allowed to move down lower in the capital structure, that's very critical for the ETF as well because um, that allows the ETF to get or generate additional yield above and beyond uh, what's offered by the fixed income market. But at the same time all these instruments all also have that resettable feature where as interest rates continue to go up they're allowed to reset the prevailing interest rate as well so it does offer um, interest rate protection as well so um, you know those are some some key things to note about the structure of zbi
1: one of the largest proxies of the rate reset market here in canada is zpr one of our other etfs and i do have clients that want to contrast or compare the two knowing that there's exposure or similar exposure between them. can you maybe go a little bit deeper on the distinction between the traditional rate reset versus an LRCN and why the LRCN market exists?
0: That's a good question. I, I think it that's a good differentiator as well. I, I don't want um, investors to be confused with uh, ZPI and ZPR. Um, so with ZPR you know which is one of our most popular ETFs, I would say Um, ZPR is essentially a preferred share ETF. So uh, what ZPR essentially does is that it will offer investors a pure exposure into rate preset preferred shares. Um, ZBI, even though it holds an element of preferred shares, um, in terms of its weighting in traditional preferred shares, it's only about 20% of the portfolio. So I don't want investors to think that ZBI is Um, a preferred share ETF, even though it has an element of preferred shares in it. Um, The other key differentiator is that with ZBI, uh, whereas ZPR could invest in preferred shares issued by all sectors, ZBI invests in only preferred shares issued by the banks or the big uh, big six Canadian banks and any banks in Canada. So that's a key differentiator because when you look at you know, there's a unique situation going on with bank-issued preferred shares right now. So as you know, over the last couple of years, and anybody that's followed the preferred share market, they've been, you know, a lot of, or, or you know, the newer instruments have been issued. So things like LRCNs um, and also institutional preferred shares. So a lot of the capital raised in issuing these instruments by the bank, they've been using the capital to call back um, the outstanding traditional preferred shares. And why that's key is because as these issues are expected to get called back, they're essentially trading very close to their par value. So, um, as they get called back, they get called back at twenty five dollars, which is par value. Um, so that's created a lot of stability to the traditional preferred share market in the banking sector. Um, so, with ZBI, because it only holds the bank issued preferred shares, it offers stability. It offers stability, and and essentially, because they spit out that dividend, is just a good way of clipping a coupon, right? So. Um, you know, in in terms of your question, in terms of you know what what are LRCNs um, and what are institutional preferred shares? The best way to think about it is, you know, where they where they live on the capital structure of a Canadian bank, they're essentially considered equal footing with traditional preferred shares, um, but just uh, there is some small differentiations um, in terms of you know just in terms of regulatory classification. LRCNs typically. Uh, or traditionally are classified as bonds, so they they generate income rather than dividends. Um, traditional or sorry, institutional preferred shares, almost the same as traditional preferred shares, but they trade more like bonds but still offer a dividend, but they don't they don't trade on uh,
1: an equity exchange like traditional preferred shares. I think when you highlight the capital structure and where each of these fit in uh, relative to each other, I think that helps clients visualize what it is that they're getting access to. And then you, you kind of hinted upon it, but the behavior of ZBI as a packaged ETF, what might we look at in terms of rate policy? Clients are looking at inflation. How does the duration and the overall credit come in? And how might you expect this to be set up for the future?
0: It's a good question. I mean... You know, you could all for for an ETF. You mean, you know, when you look at obviously, you know, to get the disclosure out of the way, you can never, you know, look at past performance and never create indicator of future performance. But having said that, um, you know, by knowing how historically a lot of the um, asset classes have behaved um, historically, it does give us a good indication in terms of you know how ZBI is going to trade. Um, so I would say, you know, the benefit of ZBI is that it it does mix. You know, as I mentioned before, the stability of bonds, but also because it allows you know the ETF to go lower down the capital structure, just one notch lower. um, it does offer those higher yielding instruments that pr- um, also provide you know protection against rising interest rates as well, right? So in a rising interest rate, I would expect ZBI to outperform something like ZCS, which is our short-term corporate bond ETF. But at the same time, you know as we've seen credit spreads widening in recent weeks, um, and also in in scenarios like 2008, where you know, there's a lot of volatility and there's a lot of credit spread widening, you could anticipate ZBI to outperform things like high yield bonds um, and also preferred shares as well. So I think, you know, having that 60-40 mix in terms of bonds to uh, preferred shares and LRCN, it really does provide a lot of balance and stability to the portfolio as well.
1: So last question then, if if I'm a prospective buyer and I'm looking at ZBI for my own portfolio, where would you ideally see that type of investment fit within the holistic approach to investing? What would you feel comfortable with and recommend? Um, I would say it's a replacement for corporate bonds.
0: I mean, every investor, obviously, it's going to be a little bit different uh, depend, depending on their asset mix, but I would say it's a replacement for at least you know, a portion of their corporate bond exposure. And the reason why is because, you know, when you look at the characteristics of ZBI versus something like ZCS, which is our um, short corporate bond ETF, um, it offers very similar characteristics, right? I mean, it's short duration. Um, so one thing I want to touch upon is that, you know, we don't constrain ZBI to invest in short-term short, short uh, term bonds only, but the nature of, you know, when you look at bank-issued bonds, it, the majority of bonds, I would say, 99% of bonds issued by banks reside on the short short end of the curve. So even though we don't constrain the um, ETF to invest in short-term bonds only, as I mentioned, you know the nature of bank funding or bank issued bonds tends to be on the short end of the curve. So because of that, you know, it tends, ZBI tends to be very short uh, duration in nature. So um, the current duration of ZBI is about 2.6, which is roughly in line with ZCS. Um, on top of that, when you look at the yield of ZCS, the yield on ZCS is going to be higher. So right now, which is you know mid-March of 2022, ZBI offers a yield of about 3.5%, and ZCS has a yield of about 2.9%. So already you're getting a you know, 50 to 60 basis point pickup, and as interest rates continue to go higher, um, that differential is expected to grow as well. Alluding to that, I mean, when you look at the protection against rising interest rates, the press and LRCNs that you hold in ZBI are going to pr- provide protection against rising interest rates that you're not going to get with ZCS as well. And last but not least, I think you know the quality of um, ZBI arguably is higher because you're looking at the corporate sector and the and arguably you know the most highest quality portion of that sector is going to be the banks. So I think. Um, You know, it is a replacement for ZCS. Um, You know, our target audience, I would say, is retail advisors. But at the same time, you know, we've been getting a lot of calls from asset allocators, you know, fund-to-fund managers looking at this, and also, you know, certain institutional accounts, as you're aware, uh, that have very restrictive IPSs. And I think, you know, this ETF potentially fits their bill in terms of fitting in their portfolio as well.
1: Alfred, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciated your time, expertise, and knowledge as it relates to our ETF shelf and structuring. For those of you that want to learn more or go deeper on ZBI, please reach out to your local BMO Global Asset Management salesperson, and they'd be happy to assist. And for me, Rob Butler, thanks very much for joining us today. ETF Market Insights has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.